You're listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast. My name is Matthew, and as your host, my mission is to help you discover who God is and what it means to live as a citizen of His kingdom. Greetings. Hi, everybody. You're listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast. My name is Matthew, and this week we're continuing with our third season, which is our How-To Guide to Christianity. And this week's discussion is about the church. How do I find one or Rather, I should say, how do I find a good one? And then how do you make yourself a part of it? This episode will kind of cover those two questions, and then we'll get into more things about the church later in this season. But I wanted to start with this question in particular, because being part of a church, along with prayer and reading the Bible, are seen by a lot of experts in the field of spiritual growth among Christians as kind of the top three practices that will help you become more like Jesus on this spiritual journey that we're all on. So, this week, let's talk about the church. Something that I've done for the previous episodes in this season, and I think it makes sense to do it here too, is to ask why and what before we ever get into the how. So, why is it important to gather together on a regular basis with other Christians? The answer to that particular question, if we get it wrong, is going to misshape so much of what follows. And once again, just like the past few episodes, it's worth saying that this isn't about obligation. We can't do anything to make God love us more or less. He doesn't keep attendance records because he's not evaluating us like that. And I can't say that too many times. There are no brownie points to be earned by going to a meeting. Instead, the reason for the church, the reason that we gather together is twofold. On the one hand, it's good for us, and then on the other hand, it's good for those around us. Basically, what we're talking about here is what many Christians call fellowship, and fellowship is a sense of community and belonging, and it's the act of sharing one another's company, spending time together, building relationships, and growing together as Christians. There's this idea that a lot of us have, particularly in the United States, And especially men tend to have this, although it's not strictly a gender thing. We've got this myth that we cling to that is the lone wolf. The person who is the rugged individualist and doesn't need anybody and I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. That whole persona doesn't actually work. Even a literal lone wolf is a myth. That isn't really a thing even in nature. Wolves hunt in packs, so a lone wolf is actually going to starve to death. They live together, they rely on one another as a pack. A wolf who is truly on his own is going to die. It's not a survivable scenario. And so, within Western culture, we have this flaw that we think we can do it by ourselves. And the reality is that none of us can make it on our own. We're not designed to be loners. Much like wolves, human beings are designed to live within a communal structure that supports us and defends us and helps us to accomplish our goals. This particular set of principles is even borne out in Scripture. In the book of Ecclesiastes, which is in the Old Testament, the writer of that book observes, and I quote, that two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But Pity anyone who falls and also has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, 
a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. By the way, in case anyone wants to look that up later, that was the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, and I happen to be reading out of the New International Version for that. So what we see here is that in basically every category of human endeavor, whether it's self-defense or trying to accomplish a task or even staying warm at night, which I would even extend that section out to one's social or emotional warmth, your well-being, your mental health, relies on having people around you to support you, to encourage you. And so none of us is meant to be doing this Christian life alone. There's another nearby passage in the book of Proverbs, chapter 27, verse 17, that has a relatively similar meaning. It's, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. You know, when you buy a knife block and it has that sharpening stick and you run the knife's edge along it so that it smooths out all of the rough spots and makes it a sharper blade? That is kind of what people do to one another. Within the context of relationships and community, it's actually even the conflict that we have with one another that hones us and sharpens us and makes us better people. Because we've all got rough spots. We've got hidden areas of selfishness within our hearts that honestly, we're not aware of until they rub up against somebody else's free will. And when those conflicts happen, when they're exposed, that gives us the opportunity to self-correct. And if we never experience that interpersonal conflict because we're always running away from it, or we just exist in this vacuum where I'm the only person, we miss out on that opportunity to have ourselves sharpened and become, honestly, better individuals, better followers of Jesus. Before we move on here, I'm going to throw one more Bible passage out there, and this one is Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, that says, Where two or three gather in my name, and this is Jesus speaking, he says, There I am with them. What Jesus is saying in this particular passage is that there's something innately different when two or three or two or three thousand come together to worship or to pray or to do anything in his name. There's something about the community itself that specifically conveys the presence of God. And this is something that, honestly, you may have to go experience to truly understand because it's very difficult to explain in words. Basically, he dwells in our presence as a community in a way that's far beyond anything that can be experienced on an individual level. And that's a great segue into our next topic, which is really, what is the church? Because when we talk about the church, and you'll often see it capitalized in this sense of the word, what we're talking about is the family, the fellowship, the relational network, whatever you want to call it, of all Christians all over the world for all time. All of us together, as a collective, make up what we call the church. Now that's how the Bible uses that term, and it's how many theologians use that term today as well. However, we often make this distinction between the church and a church, or this or that church. And when we use the word that way, usually we use it with a lowercase c, because it refers to the smaller scale. That's a community. And a community can be two people, it can be 2,000 people, in one specific place who meet together regularly. And by the way, if you want more information about that distinction between capital C, the church, or lowercase c, churches, 
It's something that was covered in Season 2, Episode 5, which was about community from God's perspective. So feel free to give that a listen if you're curious about that or if you want to get more at the core ideas surrounding the word church and all that it entails. But here this week, I'm pretty much just talking about that second definition, the local church. Another word you could use that means more or less the same thing is an assembly or a congregation. As a couple of examples, my parents, for instance, belong to a Baptist church in this area, and I was also raised in a different church that happened to be Baptist. Meanwhile, my wife and I are currently members of an Assemblies of God church that meets a few miles from our house, and then on the way to that church, we do drive past an Anglican church and something called a non-denominational church, and there are a bunch of others that I haven't even mentioned yet. Now, those are all churches in the lowercase c sense of the word, and while they're all different in a few ways that sometimes seem obvious, they're also very similar in a lot more ways that we tend to take for granted. They're all tiny expressions of the larger capital C church precisely because we all worship the same God, we proclaim the same good news about Jesus, we all believe the same core theology that God is all-powerful and good and that he created the world, that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died and that he conquered death, and that he's the king. Those high-level issues are all the same pretty much across any church that you could ever visit. And I would argue that they're a fundamental part of what makes something a church in the first place, at least in the Christian sense of the word. If you take away any of those foundational doctrines, you end up with something other than a church. You also see some practical and even organizational similarities across all churches. Whether it's on purpose or by accident, every congregation ends up having one or more people who serve as leaders and spiritual guides, and though they might call them different things like elders, bishops, pastors, priests, or frankly a number of other titles, those people tend to do the same kinds of work in the community. They're the teachers, and honestly, for lack of a more spiritual-sounding word, they end up being the MCs. and outside of those meetings, they're the shepherds who tend to the spiritual needs of the community's members. Now, those are the essentials, the things that every church has going on. However, once we get past those essentials, the differences immediately start to become obvious. For instance, we could talk about buildings. Some churches meet in a dedicated space, which could be as large and ornate as a cathedral or as small as a storefront in a strip mall. Some congregations, however, don't even have a dedicated building. They might meet in a rented space like a school cafeteria or a movie theater. Others might even meet in public areas like parks or coffee shops, and some do meet in people's houses. And that also works, and none of those churches is more or less a church based on where and how they decide to meet. The nature and character of each of those meetings can also vary considerably across different types of churches. For instance, some meetings might be stoic and use a lot of symbolic actions like kneeling and standing, or even burning incense and candles in their worship of God. Most, if not all, churches do include some kind of musical worship in a lot of their meetings, although that can also look different. For some churches, that's calmly singing a song or two out of a hymnal together, and then they might listen to one person speak on a Bible passage or a topic of spiritual significance, while in other churches, there might be dancing, there might be shouting, some churches have a shared meal that they consider part of their worship service, 
and some of them have a time in which each member could share something that they feel God is doing or saying in their lives. As far as their leadership is concerned, different churches may also have different organizational and decision-making structures, ranging from straight-up democracy all the way to all the decisions flowing through a single person. It's possible that in the future of this podcast, we might have a closer look at the pros and cons of some of those diverse features that you might find in a church. But for now, all I can really say is that there are very few right or wrong answers. Different modes and styles of worship appeal to different people, as do different times and places. The thing here is that as long as those core fundamentals are in place, as long as the community is healthy, the surface-level distinctions don't really matter all that much. I'm someone who can worship comfortably alongside pretty much anyone, so long as they're following the same Jesus that I am. Oftentimes, people will be drawn to a particular church because of some kind of relational connection, like, the person that first told me about Jesus goes to this church, or this is the kind of church my parents went to, and so forth. And sometimes those connections can be good, and sometimes they can be bad. Sometimes it's, my parents went to this kind of church, and therefore I will never set foot in that kind of church. And it's okay to make decisions here based in part on those connections. And when I say in part, it's because sometimes those factors really are indicators of, is this an acceptably healthy church or not? Or even, can I be an acceptably healthy member of this particular church or not? The existence of healthy communities kind of implies that there is a possibility of unhealthy communities, and those definitely exist, and there are a lot of them. So let's take a moment and look at what constitutes a healthy church in several different key areas. One is in the area of leadership. What you're looking for in a healthy church is leaders who don't always feel like or look like leaders. Whether there's one pastor or many pastors, What you're looking for, first of all, is leaders who have someone that they're accountable to. I'm a firm believer in the principle that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's something that seems to be ingrained in our human nature, and just because someone is serving in the church doesn't mean that they're going to be exempt from that. So you really want somebody who has accountability, who has a structure over him or her, So that if they start going off the rails in any particular direction, someone's going to say, hey, what are you doing? You're also looking for leaders who are reasonably gentle and kind and who display some degree of humility about the things that they say and the things that they do. To be honest, I'm someone who will not trust somebody until I've heard them apologize or admit they've made a mistake. Because up to that point, I don't know if that person's a narcissist. But once I've witnessed that somebody is capable of saying, by the way, I was wrong in the past, and now I've corrected my course, and this is the way we're going now, that's the point where I really start to trust somebody, because it shows that they understand that they're human, that they're not the infallible voice of God, because no church leader is perfect. And that's something that you should keep in mind as you search for a church. Another thing that you're looking for in a healthy church is a good culture. You could have a pastor that you really like, but if the rest of the congregation is always complaining and gossiping and criticizing each other, and they never help each other with the difficulties that come up in life, at that point what you're probably looking at is a toxic community. 
Another thing to look at is what are this church's strengths and weaknesses, and do they complement mine? Are their blind spots going to be the same as my blind spots? Because at that point, I'm probably not going to grow as much as I could as a Christian. A good example here would be that some churches are really good at studying the Bible together. They've got a really robust culture of digging in, finding out what the Bible actually says, and putting it into practice. Now, if that's something that you're already really good at, that doesn't mean you shouldn't go to this church. But if that's something that you specifically don't do very well, maybe going to that church will help you grow in that area. I find it really fascinating to watch that usually a church's greatest strength will be related to its greatest weakness. So for instance, if you find a church, like I mentioned a moment ago, that's great at studying the Bible, sometimes that church may fall short in the area of their emotions. They may not be very affectionate as a culture. Or they may not be especially good at emphasizing just how much God loves us, because they may be focused more on the intellectual end of Christianity. And neither of those ends of the spectrum is good or bad, it's just that we're all very different and we focus on different things. The key here, once again, is to find a church with strengths that are going to cover the areas where you are the weakest and vice versa, because you may bring something to their community that they desperately need. One last thing I would say in this area is, as important as it is to be part of the larger community, what's perhaps even more important is being part of a smaller group of people who can really grow together as Christians and get into the details of each other's lives. That's where accountability and the iron sharpening iron effect that I mentioned a few minutes ago really happens. It's also where you're going to find the greatest encouragement and the greatest help when you go through difficulties. So when you look for a good church to be a part of, something that I always look for is, do they have small groups or Bible studies or home groups, life groups, whatever they call them, is there something going on in this church where they meet with each other and spend time together outside of the building, outside of normal church meeting hours, whether that's Sunday morning or what have you? If a church doesn't have anything like that going on, if all they're interested in is showing up for an hour on Sunday morning, listening to a sermon, and then going home and being disconnected from one another for the rest of the week, that's a church that I would pass on because that level of deep emotional connection is something that we all need, and without it, church really becomes a meaningless exercise in a lot of ways. Now, that's all good advice on how to find a church and how to determine is this a good community that I want to be a part of? And I would really encourage you to try on a few different congregations to get a feel for what you're really looking for. But let's say for a moment that you found a church that you want to be a part of. Now, how do you join? How do you become a member of that community? And at the risk of stating something obvious here, the first thing you should do is to just show up. Attend services, make a couple of friends, say hi to some people, get them used to your presence. Once you've done that for a few weeks and you've met a few people, the next thing I would recommend to do is to look for ways to get involved. Find places to volunteer, and if a church has no opportunities for someone to volunteer, that for me at least is a yellow flag because why isn't this church doing anything? But most churches will have some kind of an opportunity, some place where someone can get plugged in and really make a difference in the life of that community. One little warning that I would add to this subject is, 
when you volunteer, when you find a place that you can serve this group of people, do yourself a favor and don't burn yourself out. The better thing to do is to find a little niche that you can feel like you're a part of, where you can do the most good, and start there. And if you do happen to find something else, one or two things, where you can make a good difference in this community, do those things. But don't sign up for every little bulletin board and every little clipboard that goes by saying, we need help with this and that. Everyone has different gifts, and I promise you, you are not gifted to do everything that that church needs. Another small warning that I would add on this subject is that you're not serving in order to be accepted or to gain these people's approval. If that's the dynamic that's been set up, for me, that would be a sign of an unhealthy church. You're serving for a couple of reasons. One is that there's value in serving just for the sake of being helpful. And the other reason is that serving alongside other people, accomplishing a task together as a community, is a great way to build stronger relationships with those people. At some point, you may want to ask someone in leadership if they have a formal membership process. Some have that, some don't, and that's fine. But for those churches that do have an official induction process, it's good to go through that because that also solidifies your feeling of being accepted in this community, which is what we all honestly want. Sometimes that process involves membership classes where they tell you this is our history, this is what we believe, this is how we are structured as an organization, and this is how you can get involved, and all of that is good to know. And if nothing else, you can go through that just to know this is what you're signing up for when you join. You may discover, hey, these people don't believe the same things I do. And that is also good to know. Usually, once you complete those kinds of requirements, there's some kind of ceremony where they publicly declare you to be a member of the community in full standing, just like anyone else. And sometimes that ceremony could be as simple as standing up during a normal meeting and acknowledging, I believe the same things you do, and I'm committed to this way of life, and I would like to be counted as one of you. Some churches also commemorate new members with a ceremony called baptism, which includes that same type of public declaration, but there's also some kind of symbolic act involving water, and that water usually symbolizes that person's new birth into the community. Now, it could be sprinkled on top of their heads, or they could be completely submerged in it, and although the word baptism itself comes from a Greek root word meaning to completely submerge, I don't know that either of those methods is intrinsically more valid in God's eyes or more biblical. Either way is fine. The third thing that your induction into a community of believers commonly does entail is inclusion in what we call either communion or the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. Basically, this involves some kind of bread and some kind of grape juice product, and we eat those two items together as a public remembrance of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross to forgive our sins and the way that he defeated death and evil. Now, most groups expect you to join before participating, although even there, some don't. Some have what they call an open table, and anyone who shows up can participate in that event. Once you've gone through that membership process, if there is one, the only advice I have for you after that point is to keep showing up, keep volunteering, keep being a part of the community that you found. And on that note, relationships require time and energy. This is a long-term investment. As you walk alongside these people, you will inevitably hit highs and lows. 
Honestly, sometimes they are going to get on your nerves because no church is perfect and no Christian is perfect. And the thing that I usually try to remind myself of there is sometimes I'm sure I get on their nerves. And if they're willing to put up with me, I'm willing to put up with them. You put down roots and you let those people become part of your life. Like a second family or honestly, what family is supposed to be like. Now that does bring me to the last question that I wanted to answer. When should you leave a church? I know I just said to make these people like family, so if you did it right, it won't be very easy to leave. Of course, sometimes life just happens. You may get a job in another city, or you may find yourself unable to attend for whatever reason. God may specifically tell you to go be part of another church, and that happens. One piece of advice that I was given a long time ago, and it served me well, is that if you leave on good terms and keep the relationship alive, there's no reason you can't be part of more than one group of people. It is very useful to have a primary church so that you don't drift away from fellowship, but you can be a part of as many different circles as you have room in your own heart for. And I would say that that applies not just to official churches, but also to small groups, different circles of friends. Be in fellowship with as many different kinds of people as you can. Now, of course, that's my advice for how to leave if there's no animosity and nothing negative going on in the reason that you're looking for a new church. But of course, there are sometimes negative events that go on in our lives that cause us to no longer be able to associate with a group of people. And I'm not talking about they didn't greet me when I came in the door last month, or they didn't put me in charge of the thing that I demanded to be in charge of. Or even, they told me that this habit that I struggle with is sinful and I really don't want to give it up, so I'm going to find a church that's okay with it. Now those are all things that can and should be resolved, but they should be resolved through relationships. Trust is earned both on their part and yours, so in the same way that they shouldn't be putting you in charge of something until they know you, they also don't get to give you advice about what's sinful if they don't really know you very well first. That is a two-way street. If you make yourself a part of a church, I promise you that eventually you will find a reason to leave that church. You also won't always agree with every point of theology and teaching in any church that you find. Those kinds of things happen. And as long as those conflicts are mild or even moderate, they can probably be overcome And in the process, you may find that you are far stronger for it, and so is the church that you decided to remain a part of. But there is an entirely different category that I don't want to whitewash or gloss over here, where sometimes those conflicts can be quite severe. Sometimes the person that you thought was a shepherd ends up being a wolf. And if you're in a situation involving anything illegal, anything unethical, anything genuinely abusive, My immediate advice to you is to get out. I've said it before, and I will say it again. God cares more about your well-being than your attendance or membership in any abusive system that's going to harm you. In those cases, please leave for your own sake. And while you're on the way out the door, if it's at all possible, be open with that church or at least with the leadership about why you're leaving. I'd still recommend being polite and being gracious if you can be, If for no other reason than that you want people to believe your reasoning, and if you go ballistic, they're less likely to hear you. But also there's something to be said for engaging in conflict the way Jesus would. He always treated people with dignity, 
even when they didn't deserve it, and we do want to be more like him. One last area where I would ask you to give people the benefit of a doubt is where rumors are concerned. If something happens directly to you, of course, do not let anyone tell you that your experience isn't real. But for anything that you receive secondhand or thirdhand or fourthhand, remember that you're only hearing one side of the story, often through the grapevine, so don't be too hasty to take action without hearing both sides of the story. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a church situation and people were angry with each other and leaving and all sorts of different things because they only had half of a story. And usually a situation is a lot more complicated than either side knows by themselves. And a little bit of active listening and getting the details and finding out what really happened can resolve a lot of those issues. How to find and join a church certainly is a very broad topic, and even though I've given you a lot of information in this episode, I am acutely aware that there's so much I could have covered but didn't, so if you have specific questions related to the different types of churches that there are, different practices, or what it means to join one and be a part of it, please feel free to drop me a line. My contact information is available in the description of this episode. Also, if you have a moment, please rate and review this episode. I hope favorably, but please be honest. And finally, remember that we're switching to a bi-weekly release schedule. So the next episode will be released in two weeks, and it's going to be about a related topic, how to worship God. I'll talk to you then, and meanwhile, thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast conversations for people who want to be more like Jesus. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe now and consider sharing it with your friends. For more information about this episode's topic, or to continue the discussion, please consult the show notes. See you next time!